Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hello to all of our listeners. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, December 2021. This is Season 2 of the FNS On Air podcast, Episode 1. Eve, Kurt, Pietro, it is wonderful to see and hear you all today. It's great to see you too, Micah and Pietro and Kurt. I also loved getting to see you guys live at ASRM. It was fantastic. Yeah, great having everyone together. But for those of us that are still listening at home as well, glad we can continue with the podcast. And Eve, as you mentioned, I also love doing the FNS on air live from the ASRM Fertility and Sterility booth. And just congratulations to our producer, Michael Simone, for coming up with that idea. To our listeners, if you have not listened to that podcast yet, there's actually two of them that were generated from ASRM. Fantastic interviews from fellows, authors, and the leadership of our society. So I encourage you to listen to that. I also want to give a shout out to one of our listeners. I was contacted uh, this week by Professor Pandian Natarajan from India, who was talking to me about the views and reviews, which we'll get to in a second, but also mentioned that he always listens to FNS on air and loves it. So thank you, sir, for listening to us all the way from India. So Eve, we're going to dive right in. I think you're covering the views and reviews. From this month. This month's views and reviews was put together by our very own Micah Hill. This is a timely collection of articles on exploring recurrent implantation failure. And Micah, this is just, I can't overstate what a great collection of articles this is. I think for all of us, repeated failure in the face of a good quality embryo And what appears to be adequately developed endometrium is just one of the most frustrating issues that I face in my personal practice, and I think that we all face in the field of reproductive medicine. Micah, your introduction, Saper Aude, or Dare to Know, so beautifully conveys the despair that physicians and patients alike suffer. I want to read a few abbreviated sentences from your introduction that lays the groundwork for the articles that follow. Quote, Patients with recurrent implantation failure wonder why they have not had a child. This can lead to requesting interventions that lack evidence and searching to try anything that might fulfill their dreams. Clinicians are frustrated having done everything their lifelong acquisition of knowledge and experience informs them to do. Clinicians are invested in their patients and recurrent implantation failure also takes a toll on those providing care. This can lead to treatment in the absence of evidence. Some critical thinkers call these add-ons. Some call these doing the best that we can. And I find myself somewhere in between, end quote. I read this passage because I couldn't have summarized this better. The three articles in this series address the pertinent issues, the dilemma, the evidence, and the future. The first article, Defining Recurrent Implantation Failure, a Profusion of Confusion or Simply an Illusion, is by Audrey Garneau and Steve Young. The stated goal of their piece is to make progress towards a universally accepted definition of recurrent implantation failure, 
by exploring what is known about implantation and its failure. So I want to just state that point again. We really need a universally accepted definition of recurrent implantation failure. It doesn't yet exist. And I think a huge part of the struggle of recurrent implantation failure is that we're all using different definitions. And so what the authors discuss in this piece is that a standard definition of RIF or recurrent implantation failure would benefit the field by improving research study design and allowing the synthesis of independent studies. They review what implantation is, the potential causes of failure, how implantation rate is defined, and finally, they tackle the very challenging question of what is recurrent implantation failure. And the aim of a definition should really be to identify those women who have an abnormally low chance of pregnancy per embryo in order to provide prognostic data and allow interventions that may improve implantation in subsequent transfers. They discuss the existing challenges in the definitions that have been proposed. A practical definition of RIF is needed to inform both research and clinical practice. There's a lot to unpack in the next article. It's titled, A Review of the Pathophysiology of Recurrent Implantation Failure, and is authored by Jason Fernasiak, Diana Alexandru, Eric Foreman, Laura Gemmel, Jeffrey Goldberg, Natalia Urena, Sherry Margolis, Yope Levin, Sam Showmakers, and Emery Selly. This article broadly characterizes the etiology of recurrent implantation failure into six main categories immunologic, genetic, anatomic, hematologic, microbiome, and endocrine factors. I thought it was an interesting choice to start with immunologic factors as the lead-in for this article. No doubt in my mind, the first section was authored by Diana Alexandru, whose work on trophoblastic invasion is truly fascinating. I've been following her work with great interest, and what I will say is that it is interesting thought-provoking, and compelling, but I don't think it's widely accepted yet or ready for clinical application. The premise is that embryo invasion requires immune activation at the maternal-fetal interface, and there are different maternal-fetal genetic combinations in each pregnancy, and these combinations can either facilitate implantation or inhibit it. They can also lead to abnormal placentation, which may predispose to preeclampsia. Embryo invasion and implantation are regulated by interaction between maternal cures, killer immunoglobulin-like receptors expressed by uterine natural killer cells and fetal HLA-C molecules expressed by the extravillous trophoblasts. So it's really an interaction between the cure receptor and fetal HLA-C molecules. And what her research shows is that the combination of genetics mediates the dance between the embryo and the uterus and drives implantation. And what they've discovered is that certain situations, such as the expression of two inhibiting cure receptors, cure AA, in combination with a paternally derived HLAC, will implant at a much lower percentage than cure B and the same HLAC. Additionally, when you add foreign elements such as donor oocyte, the uterine interface recognizes a higher burden of abnormal and if cure AA is expressed, then women will do worse with double embryo transfer from donor egg compared to single embryo transfer. 
Definitely read this manuscript and Dr. Alexander's research to, to better understand this fascinating concept and how cumulative success may be a matter of just getting the right combination of the right genetics between maternal and embryonic interfaces. The other subsections under immunology are adenomyosis, endometriosis, endometritis, obesity, insulin resistance, and PCOS, and how the immunology of these conditions may impact implantation. The authors then discuss genetic factors, including aneuploidy, mosaicism, and how these influence implantation. They touch upon the concept of DNA fragmentation and the association with recurrent implantation failure. They also touch upon gene expression in the endometrium, and overall the idea of genetics and implantation is much more mainstream and widely accepted. They move on to talk about anatomic abnormalities such as fibroids, polyps, septums, hydrosalpinks, and thrombophilias. The final article in this series is Novel Therapeutics for Treatment of Recurrent Implantation Failure by Jenna Tarasi and Zev Williams. And this is a really nice review that outlines the evidence or lack thereof for therapeutics that have been used in recurrent implantation failure. They discuss all the latest data on the use of intrauterine infusion of peripheral blood mononuclear cells, intrauterine infusion of platelet-rich plasma, subcutaneous use of granulocyte colony-stimulating factor, GCSF, IVIG, intralipid infusion, and heparin. Definitely a worthy read to catch you up to speed on the latest therapies being explored. And overall, this is a very substantial views and reviews that has a ton of useful information, a lot of controversy, and I think leaves the reader with more questions than answers. There's a lot to unpack there. That was a heavy lift. I think immunology is one of the hardest things to understand, and I think this views and reviews will help us a little bit, but there's so much more to understand. I do like the visual of the dance, though. <laughs> Great. So what do you think, Kurt? Is immunology ready for prime time? Do you think that that's the answer for recurrent implantation failure? I wish it were the answer, but I suspect that it's not fully developed yet. There's just so much that we don't know with the subject of immunology that um, might be in 20 years we're going to look like Fred Flintstone. I don't know. I can't help but wonder if the next round of PGT is going to be looking at HLA of the trophoblast in terms of implantation. Neat idea. And it feels like we're at the uh, shotgun approach to managing immunologic recurrent pregnancy loss or recurrent implantation failure. We're kind of throwing everything we got at it, and that just looks messy sometimes. Sometimes it's IVIG, it's intralipid, it's intrauterine this or that, steroids. And I think the next big mission is to just really refine what we're treating that we can pick the best therapy and not throw the kitchen sink at immunologic factor uh, as a recurrent implantation failure. Maybe we can ask Joe Rogan what he thinks. <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Eve, for that summary. And I do hope we can get to the point where we have a agreed-upon consensus uh, definition. I think that'll help both clinically and from a research standpoint, as Steve outlined in his views and reviews. So next, we're going to move on to the fertile battle. And this month's comes from editorial editor Michael Eisenberg, asking about the evidence of declining sperm counts globally. And Mike's introduction in the title is, Does My Father Have Higher Sperm Counts Than Me?, which is a man I found 
uh, drew me right into this series of articles. He summarizes the primary evidence that suggests that the counts have declined over the past century by roughly up to 60 million, depending upon the study that you read in men. He also highlights, though, the challenges in combining data over a centuries of studies where you therefore have significant clinical and methodologic heterogeneity. And so he introduces the controversy. He asked for two teams to argue this. On the pro side, we have doctors Levine, Jorgensen, and Swan. And on the con side, we have doctors Sigalos, Patsuzak, and Lamb. And he gave them five questions to answer. I'll summarize them as to why is this debate so controversial? What evidence do we need to unequivocally answer this question? How do we account for variations in semen quality between populations? We can't do RCTs if we're looking at environmental exposures. We can't randomize men towards a bad exposure. So can we use preclinical models to look at this? And the final one, which I thought was the most interesting, is if you're going to err on one side or the other, which side is the better to err on, the pro or the con side? So both sides agree that this is a challenging question for a variety of practical reasons. They basically lay out the same arguments as why it's hard to uh, epidemiologically look at 100 years of evidence and come up with a precise answer. It's hard to account for variation within and between men, varying sperm count methodology, varying environmental exposures, and on and on. So the con side really centers on this as their argument. The innate weaknesses in combining this literature is why they don't believe it. They argue that we lack a good prospective international study of the same men over a long period of time, accounting for geographic regions, climates, environment, diet, weather, etc., etc. The pro side counters by saying that the observed trends are unlikely to be due to just random biovariation or statistical variation because almost all the studies show either no change in sperm counts or a decline in sperm counts. If the observations were simply biovariation, we would expect several of these studies to have shown an increased count in sperm over time, uh, simply due to biologic or statistical variation. The two sides interpret the exact same literature very differently because of how they answered the question to which error is more egregious. The pro side argues that it's worse to be wrong in saying there is no difference because it causes us to miss valuable research and interventions that may be due to exposures that are potentially preventable. The con side argues that it's worse to say that an association exists when it doesn't and excite the unnecessary downstream consequences of that false information. Statistically, I'd have to say that convention agrees with the con side. It's more egregious to commit a type 1 error than a type 2 error. But that being said, the pro side actually convinced me. As much as I enjoy being critical of the limitations of literature, there seems to be a preponderance of evidence of observational studies and biologic plausibility that would explain that sperm counts are dropping. At some point, we may actually be causing too much harm by ignoring imperfect data in the pursuit of a perfect study, which may just be unrealistic or too far down the road. So, Kurt, as always, when we have epidemiologic studies, I come to you for your perspective because this is something that uh, you certainly are a methodologist and like precise and accurate methods, but you're also an epidemiologist and, and can appreciate trends over time. So how do you interpret this type of literature? I really enjoyed reading this, this fertile battle as well because it was an intriguing question and um, there's no obvious answer, which makes for a really good debate. But I think I err on the side of look, if it really is true, that has major consequences. And to try to dismiss that with bad evidence, you're right, it's contrary to the scientific thinking, but 
these are really important consequences. So I would I would err on the side of thinking it's true and trying to figure out why. But you know, it's not a it's not a done deal at this point. Anybody else want to give their score on this debate? Pietro, you don't have to. Chickens. <laughs> no, I think you accurately summarized it, and I really don't have much to add. All I'll say is I'm glad childbearing is behind me and not in front of me if this trend were to continue. <laughs> I, I'm going to take us down a quick rabbit hole with just uh, some thoughts on this paper. And to our producer, Michael Simone, feel free to just edit this out if it's wacky. My, my fellows at this point, past and present, will turn off the podcast because I always love comparing animal reproductive physiology to human and as we look at mammals, mammals that tend to be monogamous and don't have reproductive pressure have very poor sperm motility and morphology. And we see this in our closest relatives with primates, the chimps, uh, who the females may mate with half a dozen to a dozen different males during their ovulatory window, have very good sperm volume, sperm morphology, sperm motility, very large testicles. Our other close primate, the gorilla, who the silverback dominates just by his physical size, has very small testicles and really crappy sperm. And so humans seem to be more on the gorilla side with how our sperm morphology is. So it makes me wonder, apart from environmental factors that may cause this relatively short-term change, could there be other things? And there is an example from the lab of Brant Weinstein at the NIH, which some of my fellows work in. He studies developmental biology, and he's been looking at the cavefish in Mexico, the blind cavefish, which is genetically identical to the sighted cavefish that lives in lighted pools just outside of the caves. And they've never found genetic mutations in the DNA sequence of these fish. But what he recently published is that these fish ep actually epigenetically silence the genes for eye development at about two days of development. So for some reason, epigenetic changes have made it that this fish realizes it doesn't need to expend energy on that. So it just makes me wonder if some of the human changes, I think they're definitely due to environmental exposures. But if we think about Jamie Metzl and uh, hacking Darwin, if we think about the things we heard at ASRM of potentially taking somatic cells and changing them to germ cells. Will humans in a thousand years epigenetically silence our, our sperm genes? That just makes me wondering what other factors are at play apart from just the um, environmental exposures, which I think are real. Well, I'll add two other cliches to this interesting debate. There's two ways to look at this, right? It, it's possible that sperm counts might be declining because there's certainly no lack of people on this planet. And in many times, that teleologic response to overpopulation is decreased reproduction. However, the alternative side of that is the cliche that I've, I've used many times is sometimes you don't read the writing on the wall until your back is against it, meaning that you, you, if you don't recognize this problem now, we really could have problems in the future about you know, reproduction. So more to follow on this debate, but it certainly got us thinking. All right. Thank you for letting me wander down that rabbit hole and bringing us back out. Uh, Pietro, I think on the topic of epigenetics, you have a seminal contribution that you're discussing this month. Well, this is a perfect transition since you've brought up epigenetic changes. As all of the listeners know, much has been written and discussed about how ART conceived pregnancies are associated with a wide variety of detrimental obstetric and neonatal outcomes compared to non-ART conceived pregnancies. And Kurt, you'll appreciate I was very careful to not call them spontaneous or natural conceived pregnancies. 
Well done. Researchers have been paying more and more attention to how epigenetic changes associated with ART may be driving some of these outcomes. And in this month's FNS, Barbara et al. sought to determine if the epigenetic control of imprinted genes in transposable elements differs at birth between fresh or frozen embryo transfer conceived children and non-ART conceptions. And as a refresher for both me and the listeners, imprinted genes are genes whose expression is determined by the parent that contributed them. They're very susceptible to epigenetic control. Transposable elements, also known as jumping genes or transposons, are sequences of DNA that move or jump from one location in the genome to another and play a regulatory role in gene transcription. To evaluate these epigenetic phenomenon, the authors assembled a prospective cohort of 220 singleton pregnancies that were conceived either without the assistance of ART, conceived via cleavage stage fresh transfer, or conceived via blast assist stage frozen embryo transfer. And in these patients, they collected placental tissue as well as cord blood and analyzed their DNA for methylation in gene transcription levels at a host of pre-specified transposable elements and imprinted gene sites. They found that after you controlled for age, parity, sex of the newborn and gestational age at birth, all things that can affect DNA methylation profiles, that there are actually some differences. And while the paper has a lot of data in it, I think the big takeaway here is that they actually found lower methylation levels of two imprinted genes, H19 and IGF2, in fresh compared to frozen conceived pregnancies, as well as lower DNA methylation in a transposable element called line one that is associated with placental function. They point out that because there were no differences between frozen and non-ART conceived pregnancies, the driver really must be something about the ovarian stimulation and the abnormal embryo-endometrial relationship around the time of implantation. And they think that this potentiates an inadequate or an abnormal trophoblastic invasion. And the downstream effects of this are placental epigenetic regulation and function. The hypothesis here that the authors put together based on their data is actually further strengthened because they only found this relationship in the placental tissue but not the cord blood, which is really, really cool. There's something about the fetus being protected and these changes not showing up in the cord blood. So I think if we take a step back, this is really interesting stuff, and this is a very valuable contribution to the literature, um, mostly because they're actually able to compare fresh versus frozen versus non-ART pregnancies, which is tough to do, especially at the numbers that they were able to do it. But I think there's some opportunities for pause and some generalizability issues that we should mention. First of all, these were fresh day three transfers, which we're doing less and less of, but day three also means shorter culture time compared to blastocyst stage transfer, and we know that the duration of culture may be associated with some epigenetic changes. And two, we are accounting for other IVF interventions. There's ICSI, hatching, trophectoderm biopsy, which there's certainly some concern for epigenetic changes. I encourage everyone to take a read at this article. I think it's really, really interesting. And I'm not sure that's something that patients will be asking us about per se, but I think something that certainly the clinician will be responsible for learning more and more about as we unravel the mysteries of how ART can have an association with epigenetic changes at multiple points in treatment. I thought this was really fascinating. And I think if you think about how vitrification works with the infusion of cryoprotectants like DMSO into the embryo, I found it really reassuring that frozen embryo transfers in particular didn't have any 
issues with increased methylation, given that you're infusing these cryoprotectants directly into the embryo. Obviously, they're being removed at the time of warming, but I think there's a lot of theory and a lot of thought about could that potentially change the epigenetics of an embryo. So I thought this was really thought-provoking and interesting and a very informative read and reassuring overall for the future of our field. I think epigenetics is really something we need to pay attention to. I mean, the fact that you can change the entire phenotype of somebody based on conditions that might happen preconception or at conception or at early placentation is amazing and is probably very, very important. You know, we coined a phrase a long time ago that health affects reproduction and reproduction affects health. I think it goes all the way down to these early stages. We, we definitely need to learn more about this. Well, and that's where I think when we counsel patients, I'm going to bring this back to the clinical level, we counsel patients who are utilizing an oocyte donor that they will not have the basic building blocks of DNA by using an oocyte donor, but simply by becoming pregnant and carrying that fetus, hopefully, to term, that there can be some epigenetic changes that the that the mom or the intended parent will influ- positively influence in a good pregnancy environment. And I, I do think that patients find a lot of comfort in that, that there's genetics, there's also epigenetics, and that they're not being completely taken out of the equation when making the decision to use an oocyte donor. I think the flip side of that is for those couples who are using a gestational carrier, those are difficult conversations in terms of what are the implications of using a gestational carrier. I think oftentimes couples feel incredibly reassured that it is their genetics, but now you have the alternative issue that while it's their genetics, it may not be epigenetically influenced. And I think the ultimate test uh, to understand this, the ultimate experiment, which I, I don't think is ethical and will ever do, would be to split an embryo into two in a laboratory and then take that same embryo and put it into two different women and see how different those children emerge. But clearly, that will never be done. Or that Good luck with that experiment. Right. <laughs> that should never be done. I have an IRB officer IRB that would like says. to have a conversation with you. I think this, this article ties in really nicely to this global view that I've started to harp on more and more in that the first 40 years of IVF were really about getting people pregnant. The next 40 years need to be about risk-reducing IVF and figuring out how to make IVF safer. And I think understanding the epigenetic changes is the first step in understanding how to make it safer and then really drilling down on what are the ART interventions that are the biggest opportunities for risk reduction. Extended culture, ICSI, hatching, unnecessary trophectoderm biopsy, and good prognosis patients. There's so much left to know, and I really hope that the people listening are spending time, energy, and effort thinking about some of these questions and hopefully helping to contribute to the answer. I love this research passion of yours, Pietro, and as a third-year fellow, I look forward to seeing what your career does with that. And wrapping up our cavefish story, so even though it's just one gene that is silenced by imprinting, they actually found that that affects a whole bunch of the other phenotype because we know that genes interact and products of genes affect the function of other genes. And so the phenotype of the cavefish goes far beyond just the changes in the eye, even though it's just differential imprinting of a single gene. That's a great segue, and I want to present another article that's 
I guess is on the other spectrum. And you were talking about the micro aspects. I'm going to talk about the macro aspects. So let me give the article titled Singleton Pregnancies Conceived with Infertility Treatments and the Risk of Neonatal and Infant Mortality. First author was Gordon Farley with a senior author, Condé Ananth from Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. So I'm sure our listeners have noticed that there's been a large number of studies which have appropriately explored the health of children after conception with assisted reproductive technologies and IVF in particular. There's a number of articles in literature debating how certain aspects of ART might affect the risk for small for gestational age or large for gestational age or quantitating the risks of things like preterm delivery, preeclampsia, and other perinatal mortalities, as Pietro just mentioned. However, lost in the discussion might be that there is some early work that suggested there may be a higher risk of neonatal and infant mortality after conception with fertility drugs or with IVF. So that brings us to this timely and needed paper with the objective to examine the risks of neonatal and infant mortality in relation to infertility treatments and quantify it to the extent which it might be mediated by a very common perinatal morbidity preterm delivery. So this is a cross-sectional study um, from births from 2015 to 2018. evaluates more than 15 million or almost 15. The study evaluates approximately 15 million pregnancies resulting in singleton birth. That's, I said that correctly, 15 million. This represents virtually all of the births in the United States during this time period. So the underlying data came from the National Centers for Health Statistics and the Center for Disease and Prevention. As we are all aware, in a study like this, we have to pay a little bit of careful attention to how they defined exposure and outcome. In this case, exposure was defined as the use of fertility-enhancing drugs, and for those that conceived with ART, it was defined as the drug use plus the egg retrieval. So in essence, we have two populations with exposure, those with fertility treatments and those with IVF. The primary outcome was neonatal mortality, defined as delivery of a live-born, but then death within the first four weeks of life. This definition was divided into early and late neonatal death, thus by definition not including late fetal loss or stillbirth in this analysis. So, of course, a study like this that's looking for an association between fertility medication and neonatal death has to control for potential confounding. For those of you, like myself, that get into the specifics of the study, this study looked at several potential confounding. They took into consideration what are controlled traditional confounders, such as maternal age, parity, maternal education, marital status, smoking, BMI, chronic hypertension. However, this study was also guided by the use of directed acyclical graphs, or to teach you all a new word, DAGs. This specific causal mediation analysis was to try to determine if the risk of neonatal mortality in relation to fertility drugs operates through preterm delivery. More on this in a bit. So, now an additional major complication of this study is misclassification. For example, fertility treatment was documented in 1.3% of all births, and around 0.7% of all births were conceived with ART. My overall glance on this is that's a little bit of an underestimation. So there probably was some misclassification. Misclassification is hard to overcome, but usually misclassification results in a bias to the null or an underestimation of an effect. So let's look at some of the findings. The one pearl that is nicely presented is the inherent bias in, this, in the two different populations. Women who underwent fertility treatments were older, more likely to be married, had lower weight, had lower parity, have a higher educational level that was achieved than those who conceived without ART. They were also less likely to smoke, less likely to obese, but had a higher prevalence of chronic hypertension. 
So even with that in mind, let's cut to the chase. After adjustment for these potential confounders, there was a 51% increase in the overall neonatal mortality um, in pregnancies resulting from infertility treatment. And this risk was elevated, whether it was just infertility treatment or ART, and they were about the same. Now, there's some subtlety to this risk, with the greatest risk appearing to be in the early, in the early neonatal period and a lower risk at the late neonatal period. This should make us think, what's going on here? So what makes this paper interesting is that they take the results one step farther and they perform a causal-mediated analysis that I mentioned before. They compare the relative risks for what's called a natural direct and a natural indirect effect, or um, mediated effects for the treatment of a neonatal mortality. So basically, they look at if whether this increased association is actually due to the preterm delivery. They find that approximately 72% of the effect of infertility treatment on neonatal mortality is associated with preterm delivery. Now, that's a high percentage, but it doesn't explain why more children conceived with fertility treatments die compared to children who are not conceived with fertility treatments, independent of preterm delivery. So I know this is complicated. I went through a lot of data. Let me summarize it again. In a study of more than 15 million births, demonstrates that there's an increased rate of neonatal and infant mortality among pregnancies resulting from infertility treatment, and the risk is most evident in their first six days of life. This risk is similar in those treated with fertility medication and those treated with IVF. Some, but not all of this risk, can be attributed to preterm delivery. Now, there's a very thoughtful reflection by an expert in the field, Barbara Luke, and she describes how this data is persuasive, yet opens up more questions. She notes that while a large percentage of the increased mortality is due to prematurity, she also notes that this prematurity might be due to obstetrical intervention. There's a higher rate of operative delivery and a higher rate of C-section in those who use fertility treatments. So is this risk iatrogenic, or is this risk actually perhaps through some other obstetrical complications as well? We're all aware of the association to perinatal mortality such as placental disorders, including preeclampsia, hypertension, abruption in women who use fertility treatment. There is a link between these effects and neonatal mortality as well. Unfortunately, this study can't address that, but we should be considering that. She also noted that there's a lot of unknown in this type of analysis. It's hard to evaluate the contributions of transfer, for example, from more than one embryo and the possibility of vanishing twins. The study is also not able to inform us about the link between birth defects and the treatment of infertility treatment because birth defects were not assessed in the study. So Dr. Luke appropriately states population-based studies like this are a starting point with known limitations, but also provide very important data that we should be aware of. She uses the classic analogy of a blind man trying to describe an elephant in the room by examining each part individually. The analogy holds true to some extent, i.e. we can't see the full picture all at once, but this information is important. When women present to our office and sign up for fertility treatment to achieve their goal of starting or extending their families, they need to know that there is risk to themselves and there's also risk to their future children. We cannot fully explain what contributes to this risk at this point, but we certainly can't dismiss it. Of course, we, the royal we, as Pietro suggested, should continue to research what aspects of treatment for a woman with infertility is modifiable so we can mitigate this risk. I find it hard to imagine that there's a more important aspect of research than to uncover aspects of our treatment that can reduce the incredibly tragic outcome of a neonatal death after fertility treatment. So I really encourage you to read this paper, and I hope that um, we can understand this more in the future.
Thanks, Kurt. I think that was a fantastic overview of a really complex article with lots of statistical and epidemiologic factors. I, I do think we need to pay attention to it. I think it's very scary, and I think it's also one of the arguments against the use of ART for non-medical indications. And I think as PGTP is coming on the horizon, I think with every with every additional treatment that we do, I think the risks carefully have to be evaluated in terms of risk-benefit ratio. And while I wouldn't jump to any conclusions here, I think it is something that we should be tucking in the back of our mind and just being mindful not to over-prescribe treatment. Yeah, it's a cliche at this point to say this, but most reproductive endocrinologists stop looking at their statistics after clinical pregnancy and the patient is referred and don't really know how often this problem happens to their patients because they're not taking care of them anymore and they've already claimed success. So it's nice to see the big picture periodically to make us humble. What I'd like to see happen with this data that's coming up, both from the OB and the neonatal side, is how to translate this information to the obstetrician and the neonatologist who's getting these IVF-conceived moms and babies to take care of. What we end up seeing is that there's a big disconnect. Everyone gets lumped in as either having an IVF-conceived pregnancy and whether or not that changes their behavior, how they screen, how they manage these pregnancies and these children, I think is very, very variable. So it's actually a huge opportunity for education. I'll tell you here locally, we've been doing a lot of collaborative work with the maternal fetal medicine group. And the more we show them that the, there is a difference in fresh versus frozen conceived children, there's a difference for those pregnancies where a trophectoderm biopsy happens actually starting to change their behavior and they're getting the lingo and the language say I'm taking care of a 41 year old woman who's using a frozen embryo transfer in a program cycle that underwent a trophectoderm biopsy and they are thinking a little bit differently about that pregnancy than if they just heard this is an IVF conceived pregnancy um, so I think translating that information to the obstetricians has the potential to be helpful if it's data driven and this paper, I think, highlights that translating this information to the neonatologist, that they are taking care of an IVF-conceived child, would they do anything differently? And is this worth studying to really parse apart why this is happening, I think, has the potential to move the ball and make IVF safer for both moms and babies? Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like this article wasn't just ART and that it also showed increased risk of neonatal death in the first six days from those patients that conceived using ovulation induction. And so I think that it's not, we have to be really careful that it may be something with underlying infertility and not necessarily the treatment for infertility that is causative. While that may be true, it's also potential that it is our treatment as well. We might be altering the way eggs are mature, the epigenetics of placentation. There's a, there's a lot of things. I just want to be careful while this isn't completely understood. We don't want to blame the patient. We just have to tell the patient that's coming to us that they have a risk and we need to do our best to mitigate that risk. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair point. It could be the double hit hypothesis. You have someone who's already at risk by nature of having an infertility diagnosis, and then you introduce these ART interventions on top of that, and that could really put them into a high-risk category for poor outcomes. Well said.
Fantastic discussion. We encourage all our readers to log in and, and read this article in the Reflections by Barbara Luke. So we're going to move on to the andrology section of the journal now, and I just want to promote two events coming up next week for Fertility and Sterility. We have Journal Club Global Live from the SREI Fellows Retreat in Park City, and we'll also be having FNS On Air Live from that event. So I encourage you to log in and listen to both of those. We're moving on to DNA fragmentation, and this is from authors Vansina and Jai Workman and colleagues from Sweden. The author is titled Sperm DNA Fragmentation Index in Cumulative Live Birth in a Cohort of 2,700 Couples Undergoing ART. And just to take you behind the scenes of FNS on Air, even I actually alternate each month, choosing which articles we'll talk about and who will talk about them. So thank you, Eve, for uh, giving me DNA fragmentation index, because, you know, I always have thoughts on that. <laughs> so the aim of this study was to assess if DFI was associated with cumulative live birth and if it differentiated between conventional IVF and ICSI. This was a retrospective cohort study, at least I think it was, but they called it a longitudinal cohort. But either way, they, viewed, uh, they reviewed a man's uh, DNA fragmentation index as measured on his first sperm sample provided to their ART clinic, which is routine for all men coming into their clinic, and then evaluated their outcomes based on ICSI and IVF, live birth for cumulatively for up to three cycles. And if they didn't have a live birth and did not complete three cycles, they did some modeling to account for that from both a conservative and an optimistic uh, view. Overall, DFI was negatively associated with fertilization in the IVF cohort, but it was not associated with fertilization in the ICSI cohort. If the DFI was over 20%, something that might conventionally be considered high, it was associated with a lower cumulative live birth, somewhere between 3 to 7%, depending upon which statistical model was used. But there was no different in the ICSI cohort. In other words, DFI was negatively associated with the outcome for IVF, but not with ICSI. So the authors conclude that DFI over 20% is predictive of lower cumulative live birth and IVF, but not ICSI cycles. There's a fantastic reflection on this piece from Z, Rosenwax, and Palermo and their colleagues from Cornell. And I'll just quote a quick paragraph because it informs uh, what they say. The current study by Vansina et al. attempts to identify in a patient population routinely screened for DNA fragmentation the impact of a compromised sperm genome on IVF and ICSI outcomes. Although it's well-designed and includes a well-proven test, the study is limited. It's a cohort study, and it lacks randomization. It fails to identify a specific causality, limiting its findings to an association between DFI and pregnancy loss overall. Thus, the poor correlation shown justifies the approach that ASRM outlines in its guidelines. Routine sperm DFI should not be routinely performed. So I agree with this commentary. So, Eve, as I, as I look at this body of literature overall, I'm actually fairly convinced that there's a body of literature that's observational that shows high sperm DNA fragmentation does have a negative association with reproductive outcomes. I think that makes sense. But I still see no convincing evidence that I can do anything about it. Maybe antioxidants and vitamins can protect from sperm DNA fragmentation during the journey through the ejaculatory tract, but at least the data from FAST and MOXIE in an overall infertility population don't support that. Maybe Tessie avoids DNA damage by removing the sperm from the tract, but the last article we reviewed two months ago actually showed it had lower success rate in men with sperm in their ejaculate. 
And convincing men to undergo testicular surgery when the evidence is lacking is certainly an ethical and clinical quandary. And this study, just to be clear, and the authors were clear not to state this, wasn't designed to evaluate if ICSI is the answer for DFI. It just showed a association that was different in two different cohorts. So Eve, I'm still at the same place. I think high DNA fragmentation is bad, but why measure something clinically that we can't treat? We should certainly continue to study it, but I'm really at the point now where I want randomized clinical trials on this to show me that we can actually do something with the evidence that we get. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that the data from the FAST trial that looked at zinc supplementation and other antioxidants was just disappointing that it didn't show a benefit. And so I think that one of the things that we really struggle with is we're able to identify the associations. We're able to maybe say, going back to recurrent implantation failure, we're able to maybe show that immunology impacts implantation, but we don't have a treatment for it. And I think that this is very similar in that I too am convinced that DNA fragmentation negatively impacts reproductive outcomes. The big question is, what do we do? And is this primary prevention? Is there something that we could be doing differently starting at a young age? Not to open up a a whole new can of worms, but what if you freeze sperm at a younger age and use that sperm at a later time, similar to female thoughts on fertility preservation? I don't know where this is going. I think that we need to study it more, and I think that we need to uncover the underlying etiology and, and treatments. Micah, we've talked a little bit about this. What do you think about microfluidics as a mechanism to reduce DNA fragmentation for either ICSI or conventional insemination? Yeah, it seems like it's a plausible approach to trying to isolate the sperm that might have less DNA fragmentation, but I, again, think we need to see some actual clinical trial evidence that it impacts downstream reproductive outcomes, and I just don't think we've seen that. So I'm past the point of wanting plausible treatments for this and to the point of wanting evidence from interventions. Yeah, I also think that it's I think it's somewhat naive to think that one sperm may not be affected and the sperm next door will be affected. If you think about the proximity of spermatogenesis in the testes, it it's hard to imagine that you can isolate at a single sperm level which sperm are better than others. It's kind of like tubal damage. Typically, when you have tubal damage, it impacts both tubes because the tubes are in the same environment. And I I think that the answer is not the identification of a single sperm that may be better, but rather treating the the entire issue in hand. And I want to take a quick detour into more of an educational component of the podcast. Kurt, the authors called this a longitudinal study, and I assume they did that because they looked at cumulative live birth modeled over three subsequent cycles, but it was from a single event, a single exposure measured at one point in time. So how do you think about it as an epidemiologist, a cohort study versus a longitudinal study? Well... I'm not really sure what a longitudinal study is. I mean, a cohort study, as you all know, looks at an exposure or defines an exposure and then looks to see what the outcome was. It can be done retrospectively or prospectively. I know you're going to ask me that in just a second. Whereas a a case control study, you know, does, does the reverse. It looks at the outcome and then looks at the exposure. I mean, all of these are done, in a sense, longitudinally over time. Um, so I, I would prefer, you know, traditional case control or, or cohort. 
in my mind, the difference between perspective and retrospective, I know the classical definition is the data existed before you did the study, that's retrospective, or you collected data to, in order to do the study is prospective. But there's a subtlety in that latter statement. You know, we all collect SART data, for example, but we're not collecting it for research. So I think it's retrospective when we go back and analyze our, our SART data because, again, the data existed when you did the study. If you designed a study and collected the information you wanted prospectively, meaning you, you could ask patients things that aren't in the SART database, like confounders or other outcomes, and that's a prospective study. I, I agree with your view of point on that, Kurt. Uh, that's the same way I look at it. I think the much more important thing with retrospective and prospective cohorts is do you have the confounding variables collected? Because you could have a prospective cohort or a study that's labeled that way uh, that misses the key confounders, and you can have a retrospective one uh, that has them all very well in the data set that you can then account for and, and really hopefully drill down on the question you're trying to answer. So to me, that's much more important than the labeling of it as prospective or retrospective. Right, but perspective, by my definition, isn't just moving forward. It's you collected right. the data for the purpose of the study. Yes, by your definition, it, it uh, weeds out that clarification or that yeah, that issue of confounding variables, because hopefully you're collecting those. Great. All right. So we had a study just a minute ago that Kurt talked about that came from a very large data set of 15 million patients. And Pietro, you have one that's only roughly 500 patients. So tell us about this study. Thanks, Michael. So we've all been seeing this rise in primary C-sections, both in the U.S. and globally, and we're seeing just an ever-growing number of cesarean scar pregnancies in young reproductive-age women who have a lot of reproductive future ahead of them. Unfortunately, there's very little that we know about how to optimally manage these cesarean scar pregnancies, as well as what subsequent reproductive outcomes look like. In this month's FNS, Tang et al. reported on a total of 439 hemodynamically stable patients who underwent treatment for a cesarean scar pregnancy at their single institution. We should start off with the definition because I think people can divide, define these pretty variably. They define a C-section scar pregnancy as location of the gestational sac in the anterior part of the isthmic portion of the uterus, a thinner absent layer of myometrium between the gestational sac and the bladder, and circular blood flow around the gestational sac. They went a step further and then subdivided the cesarean scar pregnancies by into three types, type 1, 2, or 3, with a mimetrial thickness threshold of 3 millimeters, differentiating between 1 and 2, and type 3s where you have the pregnancy bulging beyond the mimetrium. So of the 439 participants in the study, they underwent one of three surgical treatments at the discretion of the treating physician. One was hysteroscopy combined with DNC, which is about three-quarters of the cohort. Two was the application of systemic methotrexate followed by hysteroscopy and DNC. And then finally, either uterine artery embolization or laparoscopic ligation of the bilateral uterine arteries followed by hysteroscopy and DNC. And this third treatment modality really was the most common for patients with the type 3 cesarean scar pregnancy where they were bulging out of the uterus at the time of diagnosis. So what did they find? So at their center during that seven-year period, nearly 2,000 patients were admitted for management of ectopic pregnancy. 24.5% were cesarean scar pregnancies. Overall, the treatment success rate was high, 93.6% cumulatively, and there were really no differences seen between treatment modality. 
among the 439 patients with a CSP, 8.2% had a short-term complication and 6.4% had retained products of conception that required a secondary treatment. Now, looking towards the future, what happened after this event was resolved and managed well at their center, um, they found that 59% of women went on to have a full-term delivery. And I think this is a great number for us out there. They noted a recurrence rate of cesarean scar pregnancy of about 10.8%. So one in 10 women with a cesarean scar pregnancy will experience a recurrence. And the majority of them, when they recur, are of the type 1 variety, where there's still plenty of myometrial thickness above the implantation site. Er, you tend to dabble in pregnancies of unknown location. Let's talk for a second about pregnancies of a very known location, the kind that give the REI palpitations when they diagnose it, or the MFM who ends up seeing these patients and ends up calling you and says, ah, this pregnancy is in the wrong spot. So in this study, one of the management strategies was systemic methotrexate out of hysteroscopy in DNC. We sometimes treat cervical ectopic pregnancies or cesarean scar pregnancies with intrasac injection of methotrexate or KCL. What do you think of systemic methotrexate ahead of surgical management for these? Do you think that makes sense? Is there evidence from pregnancy of unknown locations that this is kind of the optimal way to pre-treat these pregnancies? Yeah, I don't think that methotrexate is a pretreatment like we think Lupron is a pretreatment for fibroids. I, th I think methotrexate has a different mechanism of action. You're trying to kill off the trophoblast cells. Um, so I'm not sure that makes it any more amenable to surgical resection. Now, having said that, there's a time when you want medical treatment and there's a time you want surgical treatment. I'm just not sure that one is going to make the other more successful, so to speak. I mean, the only argument to that is you might stop the growth or limit the growth. But other than that, I'm not sure I see an advantage. Mike and Eve, clinically, when you guys see these cesarean scar pregnancies, who's really doing the management of them at your center? Is it the reproductive endocrinologist, or are you involving your mixed colleagues or other folks to help with essentially a complex case? We manage them at our center, but I, I think that's not universal for most places. We do as well, um, and the only two that I've seen in my career didn't come from the REI population. They came from the gynecology population, but they used REI because we're good at getting needles into that space, and so we did, as you said, intrasac methotrexate. But what, you know, I've, I've had two in however long it's been, and they have almost 500, and I, that's what I liked about this study. There just never will be a collection of 500 of these. You probably need 5 million pregnancies to get 500 of these. They're obviously a referral center for this in China, given that these represent 25% of the ectopics that they see. So uh, this is a good example of a basically a big case series, but how this, this is probably the best data we'll ever get for management of, of this condition. I, I want to echo that point that you made, Micah, which is I've seen people refer these for injections to MFM. And while I understand they do amniocentesis, how can you not take advantage of somebody that is very good at putting a needle in a very small spot routinely with the equipment, with the right um, anesthesia, with the right bed tables? It just it doesn't make sense to refer them out to someone that doesn't do this often. Yeah, in fact, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I feel like we're the, we are the referral source for this type of patient. We have the equipment and the expertise to get that needle in the right spot. Last comment I'll make on this article before we move on, just in the spirit of risk reduction, I'd really love to see some data to figure out if there are ways that the obstetricians are closing the myometrium, either suture, technique-wise, number of layers, 
that are driving some of these cesarean scar implantations and the size of these niches, because I think it's something that could be modifiable if we figure out what we need to modify. Or even isthmuseals. I recently had a patient who had a very large isthmuseal, not quite recurrent implantation failure, but she conceived on her third blastocyst transfer. I was getting a little bit nervous that it might require repair. And when I sent her back to her OB, I had said to him, I hope I'm not overstepping, but you may want to consider a double layer uterine enclosure because she's planning on having a third child and she has a large isthmuseal. And he emailed me back and he said, wow, I've never heard of that before. Is that a thing? And so I think perhaps more crosstalk and cross-disciplinary discussions of this um, is needed. Fantastic. So, Micah, we've just covered some really terrific scientific issues with some great discussion, but I want to remind readers that we also have some non-scientific content in the journal, and I'm really pleased to share two inklings in this month's journal. I think they really must read. We're often immersed in the data-driven world and the busyness of our practice, but I really suggest you take the time to read these inklings by Robert Norman and Bob Rebar. Dr. Norman pens a really heartfelt piece on telling the truth in medicine. We all learned the concept of telling the truth when we were in medical school, and we probably have memories of the difficult time giving a very difficult diagnosis or predicting potential mortality for our patients, usually with cancer. It's certainly compassionate to tell the truth in this situation, but Dr. Norman reminds us that we should also be telling the truth in our practice of reproductive medicine. We often don't compare our patients to those with the diagnosis of cancer, But as Dr. Norman points out, it's really important to tell a 40-year-old woman who wants to get pregnant that only has one egg that she has less than a 1% chance of achieving her goal. This information can also be very devastating. Dr. Norman reminds us of the two fundamental principles of medicine, beneficence and malfeasance, doing good and not doing harm. In this reflection piece, there's a plea for professionalism in our specialty, a plea for honesty independent of financial consequences, and doing the best we can, but also doing no harm. Dr. Norman reminds us that patients actually want the truth, even if it's harsh and potentially discouraging. The second piece is also worth reading. It's entitled Work-Life Balance in Medicine by Robert Rebar, our former executive director of ASRM. As Bob writes, he has had a very successful career spanning 49 years since his graduation from medical school. He recounts the days of working 110 hours in a week and giving everything he had to his profession, clearly a noble cause. However, he also recounts how his devotion, while good for his patients, might have come at a great cost to himself and his family. He recalls not only the awards he received academically, but a special award he got from his child's camp for being the father who got the most work done during the week. He recalls that all of his family vacations revolved around meetings that he was invited to speak. Today's physicians don't have the same experiences, perhaps, and this probably reflects the uh, the change in practice of medicine. Now, Dr. Rebard really did care for his patients in every way he could. For those workaholics um, like myself who ponder this very important question, should our profession truly characterize who we are? So Dr. Rebar ends with a heartwarming thought. He comments, while he and others of his generation contemplate the question, would he do it again, he feels that they would. He also reflects about the current and future physicians. Will they be able to provide the same exceptional care to their patients? And he thinks they will. I'd like to end on a final note to Bob and those who read this reflection. Through an exchange of emails about this piece, 
he comments to me finally that he's comforted to, by the fact that his family has forgiven him for this workaholic. And he thinks that he really was not only a terrific physician, but also a terrific husband and father. It's really nice to see the personal side of one of the greats in our field. Thank you, Kurt. That's really a fantastic end to the podcast on a very personal note from uh, two of the giants in our field with their inklings. So we want to remind all our readers that there are a bunch of other fantastic articles in the journal. We have a great one on disposition intentions for elective egg freezing, on reproductive uh, providers' knowledge of intimate partner violence, and many fantastic video articles. So I encourage you to uh, log into the journal and look at this fantastic content. Just a teaser for January, we have a new podcast coming out from FNS On Air that will be the media editors from the sister journals. So I encourage you to listen to that in January. And given that it's the December holidays from Kurt, Eve, Pietro, and I, and all the family of Fertility and Sterility, we want to wish all of our listener a very happy holiday season with you and your family. Thank you for listening. Look forward to sharing more information with you as well. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.